welcome back to Toddcast, the podcast with your host, me, Todd Baltz. Today's episode is another recitation of a chapter of Machiavelli's The Prince. Before I get started, I just want to give a little insight into why I'm reciting this particular book as my foray into podcasting. I began reading this book in elementary school on a whim, looking for an interesting new book to read off the shelves of my parents' living room. I thought this would be a novel, like Moby Dick or Sherlock Holmes. It was obviously not. However, it did open my mind to thinking critically about why people do what they do. It also gave me another way to behave towards others, slightly different from my Sunday school lessons. This book has been such an asset to my life, and I hope these recitations encourage you to read it for yourself. One note before I start. My dog Smoke makes a cameo on this episode by shaking his head, causing his collar to rattle. It happens about halfway through the episode, and I just want to give you a heads up. Thanks for listening. Now let's get started. The Prince, Chapter 3 of Mixed Principalities. But it is in a new principality that difficulties present themselves. In the first place, if it be not entirely new, but composed of different parts, which when taken all together may, as it were, be called mixed, its mutations arise in the beginning from a natural difficulty, which is inerrant in all new principalities because men change their rulers gladly in the belief that they will better themselves with a change. It is this belief that makes them take up arms against a reigning prince, but in this they deceive themselves, for they find afterwards from experience that they have only made their condition worse. This is the inevitable consequence of another natural and ordinary necessity, whichever obliges a new prince to vex his people with the maintenance of an armed force and by an infinite number of other wrongs that follow in the train of new conquests. Thus the new prince finds that he has for enemies all those whom he has injured by seizing that principality. And at the same time he cannot preserve as friends even those who have aided him in obtaining possession, because he cannot satisfy their expectations, nor can he employ strong measures against them, being under obligations to them. For however strong a new prince may be in troops, Yet he will always have need of the goodwill of the inhabitants if he wishes to enter into firm possession of the country. It was for these reasons that Louis XII, King of France, having Selim made himself master of Milan, lost it so quickly. Lodovico Forza's own troops alone having sufficed to wrest it from him the first time. For the very people who had opened the gates of Louis XII, finding themselves deceived in the expectations of immediate as well as prospective advantages, soon became disgusted with the burdens imposed by the new prince. It is very true that, having recovered such revolted provinces, it is easier to keep them in subjection, for the prince will avail himself of the occasion of the rebellion to secure himself with less consideration for the people by punishing the guilty, watching the suspected, and strengthening himself at all the weak points of the province. Thus, a mere demonstration on the frontier by Lodovico Sforza lost Milan to the French for the first time, but to make them lose it a second time required the whole world to be against them, and that their armies should be dispersed and driven out of Italy, which resulted from the reasons which I have explained above. Nevertheless, France lost Milan both the first and the second time. The general causes of the first loss have been sufficiently explained but it remains to be seen now what occasioned the loss of Milan to France the second time, and to point out the remedies which the king had at his command, 
and which might be employed by any other prince under similar circumstances to maintain himself in a conquered province, but which King Louis XII failed to employ. I will say then, first, of the states which a prince acquires and annexes to his own dominions are either in the same country, speaking the same language, or they are not. When they are, it is very easy to hold them, especially if they have not been accustomed to govern themselves. For in that case, it suffices to extinguish the line of the prince who till then has ruled over them, but otherwise to maintain their own institutions. There being no difference in their manners and customs, the inhabitants will submit quietly, as we have seen in the case in Burgundy, Brittany, Gascony, and Normandy, whose provinces have long so united to France. For although there are some differences of language, yet their customs are similar, and therefore they are easily reconciled to each other. Hence, in order to retain a newly acquired state, regard must be had to two things. One, that the line of the ancient sovereign be entirely extinguished, and the other, that the laws be not changed, nor the taxes increased, so that the new may, in the least possible time, be thoroughly incorporated with the ancient state. But when states are acquired in a country differing in language, customs, and laws, then come the difficulties, and then requires great good fortune and much sagacity to hold them. And one of the best and most efficient means is for the prince who has acquired them to go and reside there, which will make his possession more secure and durable. Such was the course adopted by the Turk in Greece, who even if he had respected all the institutions of that country, yet could not possibly have succeeded in holding it if he had not gone to reside there. For being on the spot, you can quickly remember your disorders as you see them arise. But not being there, you do not hear of them until they have become so great that there is no longer any remedy for them. Besides this, the country will not be despoiled by your officials, and the subjects who will be satisfied by the easy recourse of the prince who is near them, who contributes to win their affections if they are well disposed and to inspire them with fear if otherwise and other powers will hesitate to assail a state where the prince himself resides, as they will find it very difficult to dispossess him. The next best means for holding a newly acquired state is to establish colonies in one or two places that are, as it were, the keys to the country. Unless this is done, it will be necessary to keep a large force of men-at-arms and infantry there for its protection. Colonies are not very expensive to the prince, they can be established and maintain at little, if any, cost to him, and only those of the inhabitants will be injured by him whom he deprives of their homes and fields for the purpose of bestowing them upon the colonists, and this will be the case only with a very small minority of the original inhabitants. And those who are thus injured by him become dispersed and poor. They can never do him any harm, whilst all the other inhabitants remain on the one hand uninjured, and therefore easily kept quiet. On the other hand, they are afraid to stir, lest they should be despoiled as the others have been. I conclude then that such colonies are inexpensive, and are more faithful to the prince and less injurious to the inhabitants generally, whilst those who are injured by their establishment become poor and dispersed, and therefore unable to do any harm, as I have already said. And here we must observe that men must either be flattered or crushed, for they will revenge themselves for slight wrongs, whilst for grave ones they cannot. The injury, therefore, that you do to a man should be such that you need not fear his revenge. But if instead of colonies, an armed force be sent for the preservation of a newly acquired province, then it will involve much greater expenditures, so that the support 
of such a guard may consume the entire revenue of the province, so that its acquisition may prove an actual loss, and will moreover give greater offense, because the whole population will feel aggrieved by having armed the force quartered upon them in turn. Everyone that is made to suffer from this inconvenience will become an enemy, and these are enemies that can injure the prince, for although beaten at their main their homes, in every point of view, then such a military guard is disadvantageous, just as colonies are most useful. A prince, moreover, who wishes to keep possession of a country that is separate and unlike his own, must make himself the chief and protector of the smaller neighboring powers. He must endeavor to weaken the most powerful of them, and must take care that by no chance a stranger enters that province who is equally powerful with himself, for strangers are never called in except by those whom an undue ambition or fear have reared malcontents. It was thus, in fact, that Italians called Rome Romans into Greece, and whatever the country the Romans entered, it was invariably at the request of the inhabitants. The way in which these things happen is generally thus. So soon as a powerful foreigner enters a province, all of those of its inhabitants that are less powerful will give him their adhesion, being influenced thereto by the jealousy of him who has hitherto been their superior. So that, as regards these petty lords, the new prince need not be at any trouble to win them over to himself, as they will almost readily become incorporated with the state which he has there acquired. He has merely to see to it that they do not assume too much authority or acquire too much power, for he will then be able, by their favor and by his own strength, very easily to humble those who are really powerful, so that he will in all respects remain the sole arbiter of that province. And he who does not manage his part well will quickly lose what he has acquired, and whilst he holds it, he will experience infinite difficulties and vexations. The Romans observed these points most carefully in the provinces which they had conquered. They established colonies there, and sustained the feebler chiefs without increasing their power. Whilst they humbled the stronger, and permitted no powerful stranger to acquire any influence or credit there. I will confine myself, for an example, merely to the provinces of Greece. The Romans sustained the Achaeans and the Aetolians, whilst they humbled the kingdom of Macedon, and expelled Antiochus from his dominions. But neither the merits of the Achaeans nor the Aetolians caused the Romans to permit either of them to increase in power, nor could their persuasions of Philip induce the Romans to become his friends until after first having humbled his power, nor could the power of Antiochus make them consent that he should hold any state in that province. Thus, in all these cases, the Romans did what all wise princes ought to do, namely, not only to look to all present troubles, but also to those of the future, against which they provided with the utmost prudence. For it is by foreseeing difficulties from afar that they are easily provided against, but awaiting the near approach, remedies are no longer in time, for the malady has become incurable. It happens in such cases, as the doctor said consumption, that in the early stages it is easy to cure, but difficult to recognize, whilst in the course of time, the disease, not having been recognized and cured in the beginnings, it becomes easy to know, but difficult to cure. And thus it is in the affairs of state, for when the evils that arise in it are seen far ahead, which it is given only to the wise prince to do, then they are easily remedied. But when, in consequence of not having been foreseen, these evils are allowed to grow and assume such proportions that they become manifest every one, then they can no longer be remedied. The Romans, therefore, on seeing troubles far ahead, always strove to avert them in time, 
and never permitted their growth merely for the sake of avoiding a war, well knowing that the war would not be prevented, and that to refer to it would only be advantage to others. And for these reasons, they resolved upon attacking Philip and Antiochus in Greece, so as to prevent these from making war upon them in Italy. They might at the time have avoided both the one and the other, but would not do it, nor did they ever fancy the saying which is nowadays in the mouth of every wiseacre to buy the advantages of time, but pervert those upon those of their own valor and prudence, for time drives all things before it, and may lead to good as well as evil, and to evil as well as to good. But let us return to France, and examine whether she has done any of the things that we have spoken of. I will say nothing of Charles VIII, but only of Louis XII, whose proceedings we are better able to understand, as he held possession of Italy for a greater length of time. And we shall see how he did the very opposite of what he should have done for the purpose of holding state so unlike his own. King Louis XII was called in Italy by the ambition of the Venetians, who wanted him to aid them in conquering a portion of Lombardy. I will not blame the king for the part he took, for wishing to gain a foothold in Italy and having no allies there, but rather finding the gates everywhere closed against him in consequence of the conduct of King Charles VIII. He was obliged to avail himself of such friends as he could find, and would have succeeded in his attempt, which was well planned, but for an error which he committed in his subsequent conduct. The king, then, having conquered Lombardy, quickly recovered that reputation which his predecessor, Charles VIII, had lost. Genoa yielded. The Florentines became his friends. The Marquis of Mantua, the Duke of Ferrara, the Bentivogli, the Lady of Forli, the lords of Fienza, Pizarro, Rimini, Camerino, and Piombino, the Lucchese, Pepi, Pisasines, and the Sienese all came to meet him with others of friendship. The Venetians might then have recognized the folly of their course, when, for the sake of gaining two cities in Lombardy, they made King Louis master of two thirds of Italy. Let us see now how easily the king might maintain his influence in Italy if he observed the rules above given. Had he secured and protected all these friends of his, who were numerous but feeble, some very the church, and some the Venetians, and therefore all forced to adhere to him, he might have easily secured himself against the remaining stronger powers of Italy. But no sooner in Milan than he did the very opposite, by giving aid to Pope Alexander VI to enable him to receive the Rebagna, nor did he perceive that in doing this he weakened himself by alienating his friends and those who had thrown themselves into his arms, and that he had made the church great by adding so much temporal to its spiritual power, which gave it already so much authority. Having committed his first error, he was obliged to follow it up, so that, for the purpose of putting an end to the ambition of Pope Alexander VI, and preventing his becoming master of Tuscany, he was obliged to come into Italy. Not content with having made the church great, and with having alienated his own friends, King Louis, in his eagerness to possess the king of Naples, shared it with the king of Spain, so that where he had been the sole arbiter of Italy, he established an associate and rival, to whom the ambitious and the malcontents might have a ready recourse. And whilst he could have left a king in Naples who would have been his tributary, he dispossessed him, for the sake of replacing him with another who was powerful enough in turn to drive him out. The desire of conquest is certainly most natural and common amongst men, and whenever they yield to it and are successful, they are praised. But when they lack the means, 
and you attempt it anyhow, then they commit an error that merits blame. If, then, the king of France was powerful enough by himself successfully to attack the kingdom of Naples, then he was right to do so. But if he was not, then he should not have divided with the king of Spain. And if the, if the partition of Lombardy with the Venetians was excusable because it enabled him to gain a foothold in Italy, then Naples with the Spaniard deserves censure, as it cannot be excused on the ground of necessity. Louis XII then committed these five errors. He destroyed the weak. He increased the power of one already powerful in Italy. He established a most powerful stranger there. He did not go to reside there himself, nor did he plant any colonies there. These errors, however, would not have entered him during his lifetime had he not committed a sixth one in attempting to deprive the Venetians of their possessions. For if Louis had not increased the power of the church, nor established the Spaniards in Italy, it would have been quite reasonable even advisable for him to weaken the Venetians. But having done both those things, he ought never to have consented to their ruin, for so long as the Venetians were powerful, they would always have kept others from any attempt on Lombardy. They would, on the one hand, never have permitted this unless it should have led to the becoming masters of it. On the other hand, no one would have taken it, no one would have taken it from the France for the sake of giving it to the Venetians, nor would any one have had the courage to attack the French and the Venetians combined. And it should be said, the King Louis gave up the rebellion of Pope Alexander VI and divided the Kingdom of Naples with the Spaniard for the sake of avoiding a war. Then I reply with the above fated reasons that no one should ever submit to an evil for the sake of avoiding a war. For war is never avoided, but it is only deferred to one's own disadvantage. And it should be argued, on the other hand, but the king felt bound by the pledge which he had given to the pope to conquer the Romagna for him in consideration for his dissolving the king's marriage, and of his bestowing the cardinal's hat upon the archbishop of Rouen. And I meet that argument with what I shall say further on concerning the pledges of princes and the manner in which they should keep them. King Louis then lost Lombardy by not having conformed to any one of the conditions that had been observed by others who, having conquered provinces, wanted to keep them. Nor is this at all to be wondered at, for it is quite reasonable and common. I conversed on this subject with the Archbishop of Rouen, Cardinal D'Ambosi, whilst at Nantes, when the Duke of Antino, commonly called Cesare Borgia, son of Pope Alexander VI, made himself master of the Rabagna. On that occasion, the Cardinal said to me that the Italians did not understand the art of war, to which I replied that the French did not understand statesmanship. For if they understood it, they would never have allowed the church to attain such greatness and power. For experience proves how the greatness of the church and that of Spain and Italy were brought about by France, and that her own ruin resulted therefrom. From this we draw the general rule, which never or rarely fails, that the prince who causes another to become powerful thereby works his own ruin. For he has contributed to the power of the other either by his own ability or force. In both the one and the other, we be mistreated by him whom he has thus made powerful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Todd Cast Podcast with your host, me, Todd Baltz. This episode was produced by Fox Line Studios and engineered by me, Todd Baltz. Um, if you have a question or topic you want me to talk about or a book you think I should read or just anything, um, send an email to todd.baltz at gmail.com. The music um, that was kind of 
in the intro and outro and kind of underneath my voice was by Julius H and sounds for you from pixabay.com. Thank you. Uh, go on and uh, rate and review the podcast. Leave a five-star review, ten-word comment, and share it with an interesting friend. Special thanks to Mark Holt and Zach Pate. Remember, think critically.